discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. everyone. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. It is your host, Mexi, and today, by Patreon request, I am releasing my third interview with Dr. Richard Wolff. I give a more detailed introduction to Dr. Wolff in the interview, but he is a Marxian economist and the founder of Democracy at Work, which advocates for worker cooperatives and provides information and resources on how to set up and operate these cooperatives. They also have a podcast and a YouTube channel that I will link below for you to check out. And they also produced David Harvey's podcast, The Anti-Capitalist Chronicles, which I'll also link below. Uh, I would actually love to get David Harvey on the show at some point as well as a fellow Marxist geographer. I've been very influenced by his work. So today we're talking about inflation, imperialism, and worker resistance, hopefully some relevant themes. Uh, I definitely still have some more questions, but always very grateful to speak to Dr. Wolf and hope that you get something out of this. Before we dive in, a very big thank you to the Ninetales and Paprik for your generous donations on Patreon. Paprik, I may have already shouted you out, but I forget. So anyway, thank you both so much. The show is entirely donor funded and your support keeps the lights on over here. So thank you. And if you'd like to become a Patreon and join our bi-monthly political chats, please go to patreon.com slash total liberation. And for the best non-monetary support, sharing the episodes and giving us those good, good ratings and reviews across the podcast apps, that is tremendously helpful. I keep forgetting to shout out that we are actually now on Spotify as well. So you can check us out there. We finally did it. Thank you to Josh for helping make that happen. Um, and I also realized that we're on Audible as well, even though I did nothing to get on there. So that is also fantastic. So thanks again and on with the interview. Hello and welcome everyone to the third stream where we are graced with the presence of the prolific Dr. Richard Wolf. I am so excited to have this conversation. For anyone who is unaware or who uh, missed the previous two streams, Richard Wolf is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the Graduate Program in International Affairs of the New School University NYC. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and the host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. His latest book is The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, which can be found along with his other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism, at democracyatwork.info. So, Richard, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, Mexi, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Amazing. So for everyone watching, um, I've created a bunch of questions and I also solicited questions from Patreon and social media. So we'll start there. And then if we have any time at the end of the show, maybe we can take some questions from the chat. 
So uh, Richard, my first question has to do with the frustration and the desperation that I'm sure we're all feeling right now as inflation rates are just astronomical. Um, so, you know, state and corporate media in the West is largely bl blaming Russia, essentially. But I'm wondering if you could give us some broader context and explain the causes of the current inflation rates and what the implications are of this level of inflation. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, and I'll try to be as brief as I can for this kind of a big, uh, really big topic. Uh, the headlines in London today blare out the latest number, 10.1% is the inflation rate as we speak uh, in Great Britain. Um, it's the highest they've had in long, long time. Uh, it's devastating because the British economy is in terrible shape anyway, because of a whole host of issues that could be summarized as the declining final years of the British Empire, uh, which we don't have the time to go into. And the inflation is widespread, particularly in Western Europe, where it is extremely high. Uh, in the United States, 8.1 or 2% is the going rate these days, or at least that's what the government tells us. And the fight is becoming a fight over what caused this thing, and then secondarily, how to stop it, because it's hurting large numbers of people. By the way, and as a large clue, it doesn't seem to be hurting corporate profits. There are many studies showing that corporations, not all of them, of course, but most corporations, particularly the big ones, have been profiting off of the inflation. So be aware that when I say the inflation is a problem, it's a problem for you. Uh, it's not a problem for them. And it, therein lies the most important thing I can offer you. Inflation simply means, there's no mystery here. There's nothing complicated definitionally. Inflation simply means prices generally going up. You know, not every price the same amount, not every price the same rate of growth, but, uh, you know, it's going up like inflating a balloon, which is where the image uh, comes from. You push into it with your breath and it gets larger. So the first question you should ask if you want to understand why it's happening is, well, who makes the decision to raise the price. You know, uh, the, 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 the chocolate bar you buy in the local store doesn't put the price on itself. Uh, it can't do that. It's just a chocolate bar. Some human being has to go and say to you, oh, the price that's on there, we forgot to change that. It isn't six, it's eight or whatever the number might be. So once you understand, let's ask the question, who did it? Who raised the price? The answer is the employer, because that's in our capitalist system how it, the system works. I've been an employee all my life. No employer ever called me into his or her office and said, well, today's task is raising prices or lowering them. And so I'd like to know what you employees think we should do. Never happened, because that's a exclusive responsibility and privilege of the employer. If we control any price, it's of our labor power. We can say, no, I won't work for you if you don't pay me more. 
but we have no say over the prices of goods and services. That's an employer's prerogative. Okay, now we've established two important things. If an inflation it happens, it's because employers chose to do that. The government doesn't hold a gun to anyone's head about it. Uh, unions are not strong enough, if they even imagined it, to do it. So it's the employers who did it. And now that leads to the next question. Why did they do it? And the answer to that is the answer you give to every question about why employers do what they do. It's in order to make a profit. That's what they're in business for. If you ask them, why did you buy that fleet of trucks? It's because it's profitable for me to do that. Why did you hire those 27 new people? Well, it's profitable. It's the same answer because it's the same operation. All right, so then we have it. An inflation occurs because employers believe it's their best profit-building strategy of the moment. At other times, they won't raise the price. They will hire more workers or expand the factory or change the technology or a whole lot of other things that employers do. But the answer is employers make money when they can and how they can. And these days, and particularly for the last 18 months, if they're allowed to, very important, they have decided, whoa, we can make profit now by raising prices. Two years ago, six years ago, eight years ago, conditions were different, and they made their profits doing something else, and we didn't have an inflation. Now they decided this is the way to do it. And of course, they're taking advantage of the changing situations. And let me conclude with this. The government has been pumping money into the economy for decades, because our economy is capitalism is very unstable. We had the crash of 2000, the crash of 2008, and the crash of 2020. An economy that has crashes every seven years like that is one that frightens everybody. The government jumps in and pumps money into the economy. That's what the Federal Reserve did in this country. That's what central banks elsewhere did. And so the employers knew there's lots of money in the economy. Maybe this is a good time to jack up the prices because people kind of can get the money to pay. And we can make more money doing that than anything else that's available to us right now. So we're going to do it. Now, of course, last point. Employers don't want me to be saying this. They don't want you to be hearing it because it'll direct your anger at them. In my humble opinion, you know, if you don't want to be a chef, don't get in the kitchen. I mean, if you're an employer and you're a capitalist system, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get the fee. So, but they're careful. They pay a lot of people big bucks to come up with alternative stories that will allow them to put the blame anywhere else. So here we go. Russia, Ukraine, Brexit, uh, uh, supply chain disruptions. I love that one because if you will allow me, I'll, I'll try to make fun of that one. Uh, <laughs> we'll, do all, we'll do all this stuff. It's an endless game in which the, the point is not this or that detail, which is easily refutable. 
The point is, just look elsewhere, please. Don't point the finger at blame at us just because we did it and we're mm -hmm. making money off of doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's why the tragedy, really, and, that, and at this point, I don't mean to be cute, raising interest rates so that the poorest and the middle income have a harder time borrowing for your credit card, borrowing to go to college, borrowing to get a home, borrowing to get a car, as a way to stop the inflation, puts the blame and the burden of the corrective on the people who had nothing to do with raising the price. The unfairness, the injustice of how capitalism works is so blatant that I'm kind of hopeful that a large number of people who haven't been willing to look at it will be unable to avoid seeing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really gross that, you know, now with inflation rates rising, housing prices are falling, but nobody, I mean, in my age group or younger can qualify at, at the rates that, that are there right now. It's just unbelievable. Um, so my next question is that, you know, many countries are seeing inflation rates between seven and 10%, but mostly in the West. Um, and China's inflation rate is currently only around 2%. So I'm wondering if you could explain why this is and how can, you know, US imperialism plays into this. Um, and perhaps if you think that their development model and how it differs from our austerity based policies might also play into this. Sure. Um, leaders, including uh, our own Mr. Biden here in the U.S., uh, love to say or to imply or to have their officials say that we shouldn't be all upset about inflation. He's worried about the election coming up in a few weeks uh, because it's everywhere. And I don't know how to say this politely. Uh, I'll try. That's not true. You are absolutely right. The Chinese inflation has been between one and a half and two percent for several years now. They obviously live in the same world we do. They are subject to many of the same economic pressures, but they don't have an inflation. And unless you all think that is just China, it isn't. Here's an example of another country, not a socialist country, Japan. It also has had a very low inflation rate for the last several years, and there are uh, plenty of others. So what's going on? Well, there are several things. Number one, it's not the war in the Ukraine. The war between Russia and the Ukraine being fought in the eastern part of Ukraine right now could not and would not have a big impact on global prices. That's simply wrong, and it's another effort to kind of distract people. What is having an impact is the sanction program. What the United States and the West did uh, to Russia as a counteraction when the Russians invaded Ukraine, there is the problem. They decided to punish Russia, to weaken Russia. And they chose, this is all their decision, Russia didn't want this, but they decided to do this and basically to shut Russia down. Russia depends on selling basically oil and gas to Western Europe. It's been doing that for many decades. For example, if some of you have marveled over the explosive economic growth of Germany 
in the last 30, 40 years as it rose to become the powerhouse economy of Europe. One of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons Germany became powerful is they had access to something others in Europe like them, France, Britain, and so on, didn't have. Access to the cheapest energy in the world. It's like you were competing against someone who was able to buy electricity and gas and oil for a small fraction of what you had to pay. And you were supposed to compete, but you had to charge higher prices for what you did because you had energy costs. The other one didn't. So Germany was the biggest customer. Russia, look, Russia did real well with this. That's how Russia came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union and recovered some of its economic well-being. So th this was a match made in heaven between the Russians and the Germans and some others. But that's the basic story. So the United States went to its ally, Germany, and said, let's shut Russia down. They'll crumble. They can't survive. Uh, who are they going to sell? The Even the pipelines run from Russia to Germany, etc. Terrible, terrible mistake. I mean, someday we'll be open enough to talk about. It's just a strategic error. Why? Because the Russians turn out to have alternative places to sell their oil and gas. The world has changed. India, China, Turkey, Brazil, I could go on are buying the oil and the gas. The, not only that, because the Russians pull back, punishing the Europeans by saying, you're not going to accept our oil and gas? Well, we're not going to send you any. You know, like two children in a, in, a, in a playground fighting over the truck. Who's going to get the truck to play with? Okay, so now it's shut down. Now there's a scarcity of oil and gas in the world because the Russians are pulling back. That drives up the price. When you drive up the price, Russia makes way more money in the world selling at the higher price, which means Russia pays in that way for the cost of its war. But in Europe, the opposite. The price of oil and gas is crazy. That's why uh, England has 10% inflation today and why the inflation rates across Europe go from about 5 or 6% on up. And, it's, and there's no end in sight. And there's no solution so long as the sanction, counter-sanction conflict between uh, the collective West and the Russians uh, with their support in, in China and India uh, give you the alternative story. The reality here is that the Chinese can manage all of this. And, and it's not just because Russia gives them a discount on the oil, which they do, by the way. Um, it's partly that, but much more is the Chinese is a, how do I put this, controlled, managed, supervised economy. There sits something called the Communist Party of China, or the government, if you like, the links between the two being very intimate, as you all, I assume, know. Uh, they have a big private capitalist sector, very big, bigger than it has ever been in China. And they have a big state sector. You might think of them as a hybrid. They're a little bit like Russia was with this government-run stuff, but they're a little bit like Western 
uh, European social democracy in that there's a big private capitalist sector and the government just sort of regulates them. But between these two, the Chinese have discovered a way of managing their economy that we ought to, in the West, we ought to be looking at and learning from because they've been able to do things that we are pretending either don't happen or are only possible if you're a mean and nasty government. Uh, I'm not commenting here on whether China is more mean or nasty than anybody else. But when I'm an economist, so that's what I look at. Over the last 40 years, their economic growth has been, on average, three times faster than that of the United States. Over the last 30 years, the real average real wage of Chinese workers has quadrupled. In the United States, it's stagnant and gone anywhere. I mean, they decided that they're not going to let COVID kill a million people, as happened in the United States. So they shut down their economy. They really do. I mean, you've read the stories that close, close whole cities and shut down. Amazing. But it worked. They avoided the deaths that we've had in this country. Uh, nothing close to it, even though they're four times the population of the United States. So they are managing it. And one of the things they're managing is not to let an inflation uh, really hurt. And let me warn everyone, the longer this inflation lasts, the longer you're going to see that American goods and services produced here are going to be too expensive. Uh, because we have the inflation, the price keeps going up. It means someone in Canada, someone in Mexico, someone anywhere else who might want to buy an American product, U.S. product, is going to discover it's more and more expensive. And you know what they're going to do? What all people do in that situation, they're going to look around for an alternative that hasn't risen. And at that point, the Japanese and the Chinese are going to be enjoying, they already are, an advantage in the world economy that the United States is going to now have to confront as yet another problem on top of everything else that's belaboring this system. We are in a time, I don't mean to intrude a different topic, uh, uh, Mexi, but we are in a time of extraordinary difficulty here in the United States. Most of the response so far and I've been, I was born here, I've lived here all my life. Most of the response so far, I would characterize by what psychologists call denial. You know, it's like when a relationship begins to have real problems and both partners kind of don't want to face it. And so it, it takes a, a friend to shake you up and say, you know, uh, we are all noticing something. And then you have that horrible sinking feeling, am I the last one? Americans are walking down that path. So much of what I say may come as a bit of a surprise, but I'm simply recording for you what has been going on. And it's usually better to face up to it sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly not a good long-term strategy. I know a lot of people are talking about 
you know, dying empires and, and analyzing all of that. Um, so I guess along those lines, I mean, it's also not been a great, um, I guess, way to go in terms of precipitating worker resistance, because although right now things are pretty dire in terms of the contradictions of capital, we're also seeing such massive waves of resistance around the world, right? We have the great resignation, we have the anti-work movement, we have uh, quiet quitting, and then just, you know, general strikes and waves of unionization in many different countries. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of this moment and how workers can really come together and, and seize on this momentum. Well, let me take advantage of your kindness in having me uh, and, and refer to my white hair. I've been around a long time and I've been a critic of capitalism pretty long too. Not as long, but it started back in college when questions I asked just weren't answered, partly out of denial back then. Um, I always thought that the days would come when the kinds of worker resistance that pepper U.S. history, the 19th century, the 20th century, the Great Depression, I always knew somewhere that that hadn't been erased, that hadn't died, not, nothing like that. It had gone into hibernation because it was made very uncomfortable for people who felt that way uh, to function in the United States. I could see that in my teacher's eyes when I would ask the questions they dared not respond to. And I would go see them in the office later. And I would say to them, you look scared. I just was asking a question. I don't want you to think I'm a, I'm a jerk. I'm not here to discomfort you or embarrass you. I appreciate you. You're a good teacher. And they were. But what happened? Tell me what's going on. I'm, I won't ask again. I'm not going to put you in this situation, but I'd like to know. And I was lucky. Two or three of them. That's all. The rest acted like I was crazy or didn't need it or they didn't want that closeness to a student or whatever it was. But two or three were, were good, and, and they answered me, and they said, look, if I answer your question, which was often, for example, what is the Marxist view about science? I just want to know, what do the other side say? What do the critics say? Not that I would agree with that. I just I want to know what it was. And they said to me this, if I start talking to you about that, because I, I know I've been interested, too, in those things. I'm going to get a rep. You're going to say, oh, I like this teacher because I asked about this and then she said that or he said the other. I'm going to get a reputation as somehow connected to all of that. And that's not good for my career. And I'm just an assistant professor. I'm on the first rung of the ladder and all the rest. What I understood. What am I going to say? I, I don't want to jeopardize. These are perfectly good people. They've done me no harm. I don't want to do any to them. Um, I always knew it would happen. And I'm all I can tell you is I'm so happy that it's happening now. I can't tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I got my PhD. Let me give you an example. I got my PhD at Yale University in, in Connecticut. Uh, I am, in case you don't know, a product of the elite American system. Uh, 10 years of life in the Ivy League. I spent, I was an undergraduate at Harvard, then I went to Stanford and I finished my education at Yale. Um, 
And by the way, being a critic of capitalism, it's been I've been very lucky to have been to those schools because people are so taken with that because they're intimidated with the prestige wrongly, but they are that it can save me awkward situations. Let's leave it at that. Um, so why do I tell you this? Well, here are the two extremes. A classmate of mine at Yale getting her PhD at the same time I got mine, who was in the same classes I took from the same professors I took, reading the same books and articles we had to read, taking the same exams, a woman named Janet Yellen. And she occupies quite a position now as the Secretary of the Treasury in the Biden administration. She knows what I know, and I know what she knows, because we literally were educated together. I know that what she says is some distance from what she knows. How she works that out, I don't know. I'm not personally friendly with her or anything like that, but I'm not willing to do that. Uh, I'm not the Secretary of the Treasury either, so there's some link there, I would suggest. But she comes out of there deciding everything's okay and she's going to rise through the ranks and come to the top of this system. I understand that. Uh, there are quite a few others who do that. On the other hand, here's what happened this last week at Yale. A thousand people marched through the Yale campus in support of the graduate students at Yale who are demanding recognition from the university as local 33 of the union that already represents in locals 34 and five, the clerical workers, the technical workers, the kitchen and ground work, all the other workers at the university. Okay, you know, Yale is Janet Yellen, and Yale is those workers. And Yale is also people like me, for whom I got an education. I don't think it was the greatest one, but okay, I got one. Um, and it taught me to ask questions, and those questions it could not answer. And the basic question was, tell me why I should believe that it is necessary to accept the capitalist system without asking the question, can we do better for human beings? Since we asked, as, as a human race, we asked if we could do better than living in little villages and we don't anymore. We asked if we could do better than slave as a, slavery as an economic system. We don't have that much anymore. And we asked if we could do better than feudalism. Why in the world do we not ask whether we can do better than capitalism? Do you really think history has stopped? That progress can't proceed? That you can't do better? I'm a champion of, I bet we can, and I'm now, having spent a lifetime studying it, full of examples of how we can and should do better. And, and for me, I think that's what's going on. I think that's why Amazon workers and Apple workers and, and all the others, uh, and those graduate students at Yale, uh, which I once was, um, they're feeling what I just said. Whether they put it in those words or other words that are more coming out of their lives, they know 
they're getting the short end of the stick, that it needn't be that way, that this society could be better for them without being bad for others, that there's an imbalance here reflected in the inequality of income, in the inequality of wealth, in the inequality of power. It's around you every day and that you really do need to be kind of blind not to see it. I always remember George Carlin's wonderful joke. Do you know why they call it the American dream? Because you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually have another project called Positive Leftist News, where we take a look at all of the, the wins around the world that leftists are achieving. And it's been just one hell of a year, honestly, with unionization, with general strikes and with, um, you know, successes of strikes. So it's it is really amazing to see. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, as a champion of worker co-ops yourself and democratizing workplaces, how do you see the, the growing labor movement articulating with uh, worker co-ops? It's already happening. I'm grateful and, and appreciative of being a small tangential part of that. Um, I knew that would happen too, partly because my interest in worker co-ops led me to Europe, where there are much more common phenomena, uh, very widespread. You know, most of the banks uh, in, in Germany are co-op banks. They're run by the people with their account. They're a little bit like what we have in this country as credit unions, only they're much larger. They're much more powerful. Britain has loads of worker co-ops, some of them 100 years old. I mean, it just it's different from the United States. And so I knew <clears throat> that the United States would catch up. I would like to say, though, that there's a there's a possibility for a real alliance which could transform not just unions on the one hand and worker co-ops on the other, but all of American politics. And it's an alliance between unions and worker co-ops. That once existed back in the 19th century. They worked together often, particularly in the Midwest of the United States, when co-ops tended to be more rural. The, the farmers had an easier time making co-ops, but they would make an alliance with the unions in the towns and in the industry. So it was sort of agriculture and industry, union and worker co-op. Uh, I think there's a logical affinity, a familial link that is slowly emerging in people's heads. And it goes like this. Unions are efforts by workers to collectively get a better deal from the employer than they could get one-on-one -on -one with the employer. The imbalance of the power of being an employer and you being one, you know, Mary or John sitting there talking, I mean, it's ludicrous. You know, you're, you're not going to be, you know, you're fired is the end of the conversation when the employer wishes. You can't fire him, but he can fire you. I, it, absurd. So union, workers get together, takes time. They, they use the word union, we're going to get together and we're going to bargain collectively because that's the only chance we have. Well, at a certain point, unions discover that if the employer listens to them collectively bargain and ignores them, then they, they can't get any change, which is what they're trying to get. So they needed a weapon, and they found that weapon called the strike. 
all right, if we can't meet, we're not going to work here anymore. We're going to stop and we're going to pick it outside and we're going to try to make it clear. You have to, you don't have to do everything we want, but you have to sit here and you have to, what the government calls, because there are laws about this, bargain in good faith. Okay. So here comes my point. Strikes can often be lost. Strikes can be won only to have what the strike wins be taken away immediately after the strike is over, because that's what every employer hopes to be able to achieve, and many do. Unions need something more. Here's where the worker co-op comes in. The worker co-op has the idea, you know something? In the end, if this employer cannot give us a decent work-life balance, because, you know, we want to come and work, we want to do a good job, but we also have a family, we also have passionate interests that we're also, and we want those too, just like you, the employer, do. We want those, and you're making that impossible, and here's how that could change. If the employer stiffs you, refuses, takes advantage of his situation, and if a strike doesn't work, here's another option. You go to the local mayor or governor. And by the way, I've done this, so I can, the enjoyment you'll see coming out of my face, <laughs> an idea. And you go to them and you say, um, we're having this problem with the employer. And it didn't work, the conversation. We tried nicely. And we tried to strike. It didn't work. So here's what we want to do. We want to go to the employer and say, this is the last one. If you don't meet us halfway, we are going to establish an enterprise that competes with you with the only difference we, the workers, it's going to be ours. We're going to run it. It's going to be workers who are their own bosses who don't have an employer like you. And now why are we talking to the mayor and the governor? Because it costs money to start a business. It's risky. We want the government's help. And we say, we say to the governor or the mayor, if you help us, we will run around this community saying what the greatest mayor you have, you are the best, you're the best governor. You will get a tremendous political support. And if you say no to us, you won't be dog catcher here. Whoa, it's at that moment that my mouth goes into a smile. <laughs> the politician looks at me because they know exactly what I... Businesses are doing to that to them every other day. What they're unused to is that the workers are now coming to them and issuing them, in effect, an ultimatum. Worker co-op is another option. Listen, I've been in those situations where you know how it gets resolved? The employer, so worried about what I just said, says, you know, I have another idea. I'll sell you my business. I was looking to get out anyway. I'll sell it to you as a worker co-op. I turn to the governor and I say, we need your financial help to arrange this conversion, it's called, from a 
hierarchical capitalist enterprise into a worker co-op. And once again, if you help, we will run around saying, you saved the jobs, you made it possible, you, otherwise this company might have closed, otherwise, you're wonderful. And if you don't, you won't want to know what it is we called you, and it won't be good for you at all, you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes the employer chimes in on our side because he wants the deal, and he now sees the price he can get might be a little better if he weren't just bargaining with the union or the workers and whoever they can get money from, but he had a little bit of government lubrication in there. I think that all of these things are happening in the United States today. The United States Federation of Worker Co-ops is a cover organization that coordinates a lot of this. They have a very elaborate program of teaching worker co-ops in other parts of the country, of the world, the Mondragon group in, in Spain, they will teach people how to run co-ops, how to finance them. The apparatus is being formed. And now the final icing. Suppose unions and worker co-ops said, look, we really understand that we are going in a post-capitalist direction. We really want a new economy that works for people by putting the people in charge. We don't want an economic system where the people who decide how to use resources are not the mass of people who need the products, but an intermediate group who tells you honestly they're in business for profiting themselves. Uh, okay, we see how that works. We want something else. And we need a political party to express politically what we are trying to do in terms of basic economic change. The Republican and Democratic parties basically are spokespersons for the capitalist system that's been in our country for 200 years. Okay, that's who they are. That's what they do. They fight with each other about how to do that. But we have a wholly different agenda. We're not interested in fighting the, this detail. We want a bigger change. We need our own political party. And between union members and worker co-ops, we have the core of the financial strength and the numerical strength to be able to sustain such a party. And that would radically, you know, then there'd be a place for for the Bernies and the AOCs and all the others emerging uh, to begin to see something closer to what I think they believe uh, with a real constituency, which has a good deal of organizational talent under its belt because it's been a union and it's been a co-op, has solved lots of management problems of organization. And so I think that's where we're going. I think that's what's going to happen, one form or another of that. Well, that is really, really exciting, and <laughs> I can't wait to see that those uh, those partnerships keep emerging, especially you know as the the contradictions and crises of capitalism continue. Uh, we'll lead you to participate. You can't be a spectator. You got to be in this. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we all do. Right. Um, 
So uh, I guess along the same lines of, of talking about worker co-ops, a question that I've received um, from a number of people since our last interview is around how worker co-ops can work to address some of the issues caused by the profit motive. So for example, if Amazon were a co-op, for example, and profits were shared by the workers, how could the, cooper how could the cooperative disincentivize things like, you know, hostile buyouts of smaller companies or price gouging or any other unsavory thing that in a for-profit system might theoretically benefit those co-op members? Right. Um, I think the way to answer this is a little history. When capitalism emerges in Europe, at least, out of feudalism, you know, you have the Lord and the serfs as the basic economic system, but some serfs run away. They don't like how they're treated. They go into the towns where they can be kind of at a distance from the feudal system, but they have no way to live. So they hire themselves out to a merchant or so. And, and then you get that new relationship, employer-employee, which is capitalism, as opposed to the old one, lord and serf. But as soon as these little capitalist enterprises get going, they discover that they have, in some cases, bad consequences. They get into fights with one another. They discover that they have got to organize the relationships among them if each of them is going to survive in this new situation, what we could call the capitalist enterprise structure. If it's going to survive, each of them, then they have to work out ways uh, to, to live together. So, so, for example, you can't, imp if, if profit is what drives you, as it does a capitalist enterprise, you have to teach people, and some of them still haven't learned, that it is not acceptable to make a greater profit by using inferior inputs. In other words, you can't make, I, I'm, I'm, I'll gesture at something, you can't sell cake if instead of butter, you use the cheapest form of lard you could find. It'll make a cake, it'll look like a cake, but it will not be, and, and that has, how do you deal with that? You have to, by the way. You have to because otherwise nobody will trust anybody's cake because everybody's cake could be that awful experience I had when I bit into that profiteering capitalist who sold me a cake that wasn't the cake. That's why for, it takes time. But that's why in the end, if you buy a cake today, it has to say on the side of the cake, that's a rule the government came in on. You have to say what percentage of this cake is eggs and what percentage is, is butter and, and all of that. So that we all have an, uh, just like some of those foods that we buy Sound like a, if you read it, like a chemistry set. We don't want to eat a chemistry set. We just want a banana or whatever, whatever it was. All of these things, worker co-ops are going to have to do as well. They're going to have to work. And there's no shortcut here. You're going to have to discover, oh, we love this system, but it screwed up over here. It didn't do this very well. How do we rework that? And remember, there'll be people who fight you. Those early capitalists, you can't tell me, well, I'm a private enterprise. You can't tell me what I put on the package. Well, we won't let you make cakes, John, unless you put that on the package. 
And if you persist, John, we're going to arrest. I mean, I'm not saying it'll always go that far, but there'll be people who will resist and fight and worry. You know, give you another one. For a long time, much of the 18th, 19th century, if you went into a factory anywhere in the Western world, you would see children five, six, seven years old working a full workday. Children that weren't in school, children that were being psychologically, emotionally, sexually, and in whatever other way, abused, all of that. All of that's documented. And the employer said, I can't make a living. I can't make a profit if I have to pay an adult because an adult would require me to do this, that, and the other thing. The child, there's a, plus, you know, I'm doing poor people a favor. What? Yeah. You see, it's poor people who send their kids to me because they're desperate and I can pay the kids something and that something means something to a very poor family. So if this is an anti-poverty program, my ripping off these children. And you know, for a long time it worked. That's why it lasted so long. Until at a certain point, people said, you know, we don't believe you and we don't care. You're not ruining another generation of children. It's, it's, it's unspeakable. We won't... And it stopped. We have laws. Five or six years, can't do it. If we catch you doing it, you're going to go to jail. This is a crime we will not allow. And guess what it turned out? Turned out you can make profits in other ways. You don't have to do it with children. But there, were there some businesses that went out of business? Absolutely. That were dependent on ripping off children? Absolutely. Just like today in this country, there are businesses that rip off immigrants and rip off all kinds of people in a comparable way. Here's some things, though, that I think worker co-ops have an enormous advantage. They're not going to be profit-driven. They're not. They're going to understand. It's the logic of it. They're going to understand we have a lot of objectives in this business. First of all, we want human beings that are comfortable, that are interested in coming to work, that see work as a positive development of themselves, a place where they will make friends, a place where they will learn things. And that's, that's as important to us as making a profit. Uh, we, we want to make a profit. We want to have money, for example, for a rainy day fund if something unexpected happens to our business. We, we're, we're not stupid. We, we want to do the things that will make this work. But you know something? We don't want to be, here we go now, in competition with everybody else. Some competition, see who can do the job better. Okay. But here's something, for example, we don't want. If it turns out, for whatever reason, that what we make isn't in demand the way it once was, people don't want to, we make, I don't know, vanilla ice cream cones, and everybody becomes a devotee of chocolate. Okay, so now we're not selling our vanilla ice cream cones. We don't need all the people working here that we had before because there's not a demand for what our workers were producing. We want a system in which we can have an arrangement whereby those workers who would be willing to move to another job or to another community, we, have, we keep a record of that, like a seniority a system, and they get to move. And the government, that is, we collectively have a fund. They don't lose a day's income. They get assistance to pay the costs of moving a household, etc. And where do they go? 
they get a list of all the places where the demand is rising opposite from us, where they need people, and they go to where they're wanted. That's a much better way of handling. You know what we do in capitalism? We say, oh, I can't sell vanilla ice cream cones. John, Mary, Frank, Billy, you're fired. We don't care. They go home, feel terrible, get drunk, whatever. Beat their husbands, beat their wives, whatever horror works out for them. That's a, that's an awful way. And don't tell me that's competitive. It is, but it's a way of handling competition. I don't want, and I don't think worker co-ops would do that. The very ethic of how you work your problems out inside your enterprise would be logically applied to working it between. And that would be making uh, enterprises friends of each other, helpers to each other. And I think all of these avenues would be explored because they would be creating a context that makes the worker co-op more successful rather than in an endless struggle to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, so I'm I'm conscious of your time. Do you have time for one more question? Do you have to yeah, take off? One more. Okay, so I, I wanted to end by circling back to the theme of imperialism because, and I guess inflation, because as we know, you know, inflation in the global south has re reverberating effects in the global, or sorry, inflation in the global north has reverberating effects in the global south. Right. Um, and there's a lot of worker resistance that we're seeing there and a lot of, you know, government standing up and saying that they don't want to participate or be dragged into the U.S. and NATO's war games and then suffer the consequences of that. Um, so I'm wondering, again, along the same lines, um, do you think that democratizing workplaces or worker co-ops could help to address the exploitation of the global south from uh, the global north? Or um, I guess, again, you know, how do you see the worker co-op movement maybe articulating with broader anti-imperialist struggle? Yeah, I think the way I would put it is the following. Um, for much of the last hundred years, a dominant theme of global politics has been anti-colonialism or anti-imperialism. The desperate determination of people to become independent of what were mostly European colonial masters, British, French, Belgian, Dutch, Indonesian, and then later American and so on. The era of empire is over the long hundred year decline of Britain to the sad catastrophe it now is, is like an ongoing soap opera of the decline of empire, even to the point, even to the point of watching the funeral of Queen Elizabeth with all the pomp and all the, the jewelry. It, it, it wasn't just the queen that was dying. It was all that pomp and jewelry that were engaged in their own funeral, uh, as it were. And everybody knows it. You know, it's sort of a, it's almost embarrassing uh, that a country with such economic difficulties spending that amount of money on this desperate desire to hold on to the little that's left. Um but within the anti-colonial struggle, there were always two wings. One wing, <clears throat> that's what it was about. 
get independent. And we celebrate those leaders who did that, whether it was Mandela in South Africa, whether it was Mahatma Gandhi in India. Uh, we, we understand it. We see it. But there were always side by side with them others who fought very hard for anti-imperialism, who fought for independence, often gave their lives. Aside <clears throat> in uh, Gandhi was Ambedkar. Next to Mandela were the heads of the South African Communist Party, who were that close together in the fight for decades. They wanted something more. They didn't want to just break from the Europeans in terms of the governmental structure, independence. They also wanted socialism. They wanted to go beyond capitalism, not just beyond colonialism. And they often put aside that goal. But they warned their colleagues, we're putting it aside but it's a very dangerous strategy because what we're going to get is an independence which will immediately be swallowed up in a global capitalist system and then will become resistant to where it could go. The communists around Mandela love to point out that there were all these practices of African tribes, African villages, African communal structures that would have been natural segues into a socialist worker co-op type structure. And you see it in China too. The struggles go on because they didn't make those changes. So I think that the struggle for worker co-ops is going to be finding very powerful echoes, parallels, inspirations from the global South and that the Global South will want, as it once did. If I had time, I would go through the history. People like Mahatma Gandhi, people like uh, Mandela, people like Ho Chi Minh, many of them left their countries, their colonies, to go back to the metropolitan country, get an education in Paris or London or Berlin. And in those moments, they met Marxists, communists, socialists, and went back to their colonial and became leaders of that type who were very conscious that there were two struggles going on woven together. One, to become independent of the political structure of empire, but the other one, to get to do better, to go beyond capitalism. They did not want to subject their people after independence to a long tutelage as workers within a capitalist system. That would have been to betray the promise that anti-colonialism made to the mass of the people of the South, that we're breaking free to something much beyond independence, but to freedom and all that that implies economically. I think that language, that dream that's just waiting at the edges of the of the stage today, and we'll see it soon enough. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. And I think that um, that also just underscores the importance of anti-imperialism in the global north, because we need to make sure that 
that our governments are not continuing to exploit mm -hmm. and then also to, you know, operate regime change operations and things like that to to stop them from um, really reaching that goal. So, um, so yeah, so thank you so much for this talk. Um, and thank you everyone who ha has been watching. Um, I will link to all of your projects below. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to to speak to me today. And it was just, yeah, really wonderful. Thanks as always. Okay, Maxie, thank you very much for the opportunity. And if you want to resume this conversation when it's next uh, convenient for you to do so, just get in touch. We'd be glad to. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you so much again. Thank you.